just discovered that I must have these. Done pretending. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And we will be reading verses 7 through 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing all things that we as your children, need to know, Lord. And this morning we want to have more and greater understanding of your word. So help me, God, to speak correctly and truthfully to reveal your word to us this morning, Lord. And even though we will be talking about the great enemy of our souls and your great enemy, My prayer this morning, God, is ultimately that Jesus Christ would be glorified in all that we say today. Amen. So, this morning, we will be focusing on the enemy of your soul. It was mentioned four times in these three verses. That would be the devil or Satan, as he is called in Scripture, along with his fellow evil angel enemies. And I thought it would be helpful for us to spend a Sunday on this topic, since it is of significant importance, yet it seems the topic is lacking in attention. So, a quote by C.S. Lewis is often helpful to set the tone for a sermon. So here is one by him. Quote, Humanity falls into two equal and opposite errors concerning the devil. They either take him altogether too seriously or they do not take him seriously enough. And that is my goal this morning. The devil should not be the focus of our lives or be an obsession with us, but we need to be certain of his existence, who he is, what he is like, and what he does to both believers and non-believers. Take sickness, for example. In the New Testament, there are places where sickness is clearly attributable to the devil. In Luke, when the Pharisees are berating Jesus for healing a woman on the Sabbath, Jesus says, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Yet other places, there is no indication that Satan is involved. For example, Matthew records this. 
And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So, we can't attribute every time we get a flu to the devil, yet he can apparently be responsible for very serious illnesses. And as to things like anger and self-control, even though the Bible records things like this, but an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. But when we are mad at our kids or spouse, we cannot just blame an evil spirit when we want to throw a spear at them. Rather, we listen to the Apostle Paul, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. So, what is the big picture when it comes to the enemy of our souls? It's like this. If I told you there was an army of enemies outside the building waiting to attack you when you left, you would certainly be frightened and wait for them to go away or be captured so you could be safe and hopefully escape unharmed. But... What if, rather, this army was, number one, invisible, number two, much smarter and craftier than you, three, exceedingly evil, four, determined always to destroy you, and five, would never, ever go away? You would be terribly alarmed. Now, if you are a true Holy Spirit-filled, born-again child of God, as we will see, you ultimately cannot be destroyed in the eternal sense only badly hurt, if that's in any way comforting, by this enemy. But, if you are not a Christian, as we will see also, I cannot offer you any sense of comfort or relief or protection or assurance about this enemy doing you great harm. So a little refresher course for us to begin with. This enemy is called Satan, which means accuser or adversary. And that is almost a nice way of describing him. He is your adversary in all things. He is called the devil, which means he's a slanderer. And that is what he does to each of us to God, insisting that we have denied God, blasphemed him, broken his laws, hated him, etc., etc. In the New Testament, he is referred to as the enemy, which is obvious, and also as Belial, which means worthless, and Beelzebub, which means, are you ready for this? Lord of Dung. So the Bible is very clear about his names, describing him as a very nasty person, not to be messed with or taken lightly. Now, is he a force of some kind or a real spirit? He is definitely not a force, a floating a noble wave that comes out of the witch's wand. Now in the positive sense about good angels, in general, in Hebrews it says, are not all angels ministering spirits? And throughout the Old and New Testament, Satan and his demons speak 
and have moral intentions about doing evil. They are rational beings, not a force. So in the scripture from 1 John, which we read this morning, it says, in verse 8, it says this, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So, the beginning of what? Where did Satan come from? Is he alone or are there others like him? The answer is that he is a fallen, as we should call him, angel, one who has sinned against God, and yes, he is one of many fallen angels. Now, I could take a long time and go through several Old Testament passages that are traditionally recognized as referring to Satan and his demons who were puffed up with pride and for some unknown reason, which we really cannot figure out, these angels, even when serving a perfect, happy God in perfect harmony, serving the one who created them, decided to rebel against God and were permanently cast out of his presence. Now the New Testament gives us confirmations in places like Luke 10, where he writes, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in Jude, he says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Meaning some are bound, but definitely not all by a long shot. First Timothy, speaking of new believers in leadership, he says this, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So, why did such a thing happen? Well, we are given a strong indication, although there is only one direct reference to this issue, that the angels who continue to serve our God properly and in holiness are elect angels. As Paul is giving a formal charge to his son in the faith, Timothy, in the midst of it, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. Now recall that all angels were good at creation since all that God created, he called good or very good, and the angels are created beings just as we are. So this would indicate there is election regarding the angels as to which ones would remain holy and which ones would rebel and remain sinful and be under eternal judgment, just as there is election regarding sinful human persons as to which ones are under eternal judgment while others are redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. But... Note that for sinful fallen angels, there is no hope of redemption as there is with human persons through faith in Christ. So Satan, sometime before the world began, along with his demon angels, began a continual, fierce, intense battle ongoing to this day against God and his plans and his purposes.
So, what about angels in general? Are they some extras in the Bible, like the extras in the background in a movie? Are they significant in God's working in the world in space and time, and therefore very important in the story of humanity and sin and redemption? Well, angels are present, if we will notice, at the major events in the history of mankind. Satan is there in the garden when man began his sinful ways. An angel first appeared to Moses in the burning bush. An angel led the Israelites out of Egypt. An angel first announced the coming of Jesus to Mary. A multitude of angels appeared over the fields at the birth of Jesus. And then again, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was tempted to sin by an angel. That was Satan himself. And then, after 40 days, Jesus was attended by angels. Then again at Gethsemane, Jesus was attended again by angels. At the tomb, at the resurrection, there are angels there. At the ascension, the angels are there, saying to the disciples, now he's gone up to heaven, get to work. Of course, they will be there at the end, at the final judgment to come. So angels, good and bad, are indeed a big deal to God. Now, if they're a big deal, how many are there? As to the evil angels, it is usually said that about one-third of the angels are fallen and are doing their dirty work to this day. And one-third of many angels, we call Jesus saying he could, immediately call down twelve legions of angels at the time of his arrest. One-third of many, many angels is still a very, very large number. So that brings up a question. Are they an ever-increasing number? Well, there's a passage in Matthew 22 that we often ponder regarding our future in heaven that can be turned around to reveal something about angels. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So then, there is no progeny, no descendants of angels. But we should be careful to note that all these multitude of angels are not faceless, hummingbird-like Disney characters with wings. Just as God has numbered the very hairs of each one of our heads, God knows each and every angel, regardless of the exceedingly high number. He knows each and every one, the good and the bad. There is not one that is roaming about that he is unaware of. He knows them all individually. So the next question is, who's in charge here? Is God ultimately in control over the activities of the angels? The answer is yes, of course. Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, his kingdom rules over all. Everything is ultimately under God's control. 
So then, that begs the question. If that is so, then what about the children of God? Those who are saved and belong to Him. Are they protected from the devil? Is our Abba Father going to shield us or do anything about Satan and his evil schemes? Well, let's look back at our scripture for today in verse 8 for something that is incredibly important. It reads this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now we know that the Son of God coming to this earth and becoming a man, dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead for our justification is the most important event in human history. So the reason he came is pretty important. And John is telling us the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus did come and he always accomplishes what he sets out to do. So then he came and therefore he must have destroyed the works of the devil. So let's follow that trail. In John 12, just before he goes to the cross, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Colossians chapter 2, we read, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, meaning the demonic rulers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it, meaning the cross. And then in Hebrews, it says very clearly, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So this means that what God said in Genesis, Genesis in the garden to the devil has already been completed. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his, Jesus' heel. Jesus' death on that cross was the only way it was made possible for this verse by Paul in Colossians 1, to be true about you and I. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, the victory over the enemy for us believers is in effect right now. Described in Colossians chapter 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. So in that cross, he canceled that long, long record of our sins, that debt we owed, that justice demanded be punished. That's the list the accuser, Satan, could wave at God and say, 
That one there, he's a sinner and deserves eternal death and judgment. That list is no longer valid for you if you have indeed seized hold of the forgiveness that is in Christ. Satan can only look at you and say, he used to be one of mine. So that casting out of Satan by the cross simultaneously begins the following, in earnest, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus said, will draw all people to myself. So Satan's power is now made null and void in the hearts of each person who is brought into the kingdom of God. Frederick Leahy, in his book, Satan Cast Out, says it nicely. Quote, Satan's relation to men consists only in a common guilt and sinfulness. When the guilt of the redeemed is ended by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, their connection with Satan's domain must also end. So now Satan is a mortally wounded enemy. Not dead, but severely wounded. We live in the between of Satan's being crushed and disarmed at the cross, but not fully defeated, as he will be ultimately when he is cast into the lake of fire. Thus it can truly be said about us who belong to Christ, John says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And even though John says a little later, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we, believers, have ultimately victory over the evil one, but not fully realized. Okay. So now we have to wait a minute. Speaking now to believers, later I will be more specific to unbelievers. Believers, this should bring up the obvious question. How defeated is this enemy? What is he doing now that Christ has, as we said, made a public spectacle of him, triumphing over him by the cross? Does he make havoc with true believers? How does he do it? Does God let him get away with it? Or cause it himself? Does, uh, does God ultimately glorify himself in all things? Let's check out some examples. What about our brother Job? Satan coming right to the throne of God and being permission to ruin his wonderful life temporarily. We call Peter at the Last Supper Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back again, strengthen your brothers. God let Satan have his way with Peter, but ultimately Peter was redeemed. At another time, Peter told Jesus there was no way he was going to let Jesus go get killed. And Jesus said to him, as Mark records. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, lying to the Holy Spirit about keeping some of the money. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, let's notice something very important here. Do we see anywhere in these scriptures the exact method that Satan actually used to cause these people to sin? We do not read about him whispering in their ears or possessing them. Yet the root of their sin somehow involves Satan. It is a mystery that we cannot solve We can only know it is true. Satan does tempt us believers to sin. In 2 Corinthians, after Paul speaks of a severe rebuking of a sinner in the church, he adds this, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul does not tell us how that works, or even that he knows how it works, but he is certain of one thing. Satan has schemes, and Satan is trying to wreak havoc in the church and in your life. How? Things like giving you doubts about God's word to you, Like telling Eve, did he really say not to do that? Or does Jesus really care about you when that tragedy hits your life? Or even more likely, that you have that besetting sin that you seem powerless over again and again and again in your actions perhaps. And then if you even control your actions, that the temptation in your heart is a constant plague that the enemy never stops shoving in your face. You say to Jesus, it says right here, 1 John, chapter 5, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. Can that be right, believer? Well, what that touch him really means is grasp him or seize him. The best way I can say this is to insist to you that the devil can't touch you in the sense that he cannot ultimately harm you. He may hurt you. Yes, painfully hurt you, like Job was. Weep bitterly like Peter did after denying Christ. You have a thorn in your flesh year after year, your entire life. But the devil cannot ultimately harm you. 
Because damaging someone, that's harming them. But God allowing Satan to hurt you, listen, is ultimately good somehow to the glory of God. You hit your hand with a nail while you're pounding. That hurts, but it doesn't harm you. But what if rather you have an aging parent that you've been praying for year after year after year and there's no change, no sign of faith, still in their sin and unbelief? A spouse that gets sick, stays sick. A spouse that leaves you. Child, you raise your whole life to follow Christ and they walk away. That is painful. That hurts. But if you seize hold of these two things, we know that in all things, God does good for those who love Him who are called. That one thing. And the second thing, if you seize hold of this, God is light. There is no darkness in Him at all. Take those two anchors for your faith and it will not be harmed. God is ultimately in control. Let's not forget that. Exodus. Moses. At the burning bush. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I the Lord? And again in Deuteronomy. See, now that I, even I am He, there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. But wait, what if we are doing something really good? Well, the Bible makes it clear that even doing exactly what Jesus tells us to do doesn't mean that somehow Satan isn't going to wreck our plans. When Paul was determined to minister to the Thessalonians, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan loves to do whatever he can to hinder the spread of the gospel. And if he can mess things up for Paul, he can surely do it to us too. So we are not ignorant of his schemes. So, the question arises, why does God let this evil angel and all his minions roam the earth, causing pain and suffering? It's a long time between the fall of man in the garden and Satan finally being cast into the abyss. Not to spend too much time on a topic that could take hours, but as Joe has been preaching, it's all about God extending His glory. God could have simply destroyed Satan at that point in the garden, but everything that has happened since that time both good and bad, the struggles and the victories are ultimately for God's glory. 
The prime example is that Jesus is more glorified by all he went through to defeat Satan for us at the cross. And this carries over into our lives as Peter says when he speaks of God's promise about our future in heaven. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as Joe has been reminding us repeatedly lately, that last part about these things being for God's glory is not just an added extra, but at the heart of it all. Yet reading what Peter says and understanding it is straightforward. Living it is exceedingly difficult. But is there something we can glean from the Scriptures about the reason for suffering that the enemy brings, which God fully allows, that it ultimately does some good so that we can be encouraged? Well, we recall Job. God used him to show us what true faith is like. Not loving God based upon what God gives us in this life, but who He is. And Paul says himself that his thorn in the flesh was for a reason he understood. To keep him from becoming conceited. So he said, okay Lord, I get it, I accept it. When Peter was about to deny Jesus, which Jesus said came at the request of Satan... Jesus finishes by saying when it's all over, when Peter is turned back, Peter will strengthen your brothers. So Peter had to endure that so that he could be the strengthener for his brothers. And of course, Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan, did not sin, and in that he proved his sinlessness. So, God's promise to us in Hebrews, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So, let's ask ourselves, have you sinned lately? Does your flesh get some help? You've got an enemy who's always looking to help you along, helping you always to trust in your own resources rather than in God, tempting you to immorality, discouraging you so you don't think God is really determined to do you good. And if by chance you are doing really good, maybe some pride to go along with that. So how do we deal with Satan and his legions of angels that war against us? Paul speaks to us in Ephesians 6. He makes it clear there is a war going on. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to take a stand against the schemes of the devil. He makes it clear it's a spiritual war and the way he describes it, we should be highly alarmed since it describes our lives, this city, 
maybe even this room, along with the rest of the world, like John said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Paul agrees when he continues, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what's Paul's solution to the problem, to these fiery darts of the enemy? Well, he tells us, fasten on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the gospel of shoes for your feet. Take up the shield of faith. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray at all times. We notice that Paul doesn't say anything in all these responses to have anything to do directly with Satan. He says to focus on the gospel, know the truth, walk in righteousness, know the Word of God, pray at all times. We know that Jesus says Satan is a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he's speaking his native language. So he tempts with lies. He tells nothing but lies. He even tells what seems like the truth. That sin will bring you pleasure. But in the end, what he says is a destructive lie. So, the perfect antidote is the truth. And the truth is right here in this book. So if I know the truth, know it thoroughly, know it intimately, then when I hear the lie, even a really good one, I will catch myself and say, oh, I'm so sorry, that's just not true. Then I don't need to wonder. Is it my flesh that is rising up telling me another whopper? Is it the devil tempting me? Is it both? Doesn't matter. Because I'm testing all things against the truth. I'm fully outfitted for battle. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, how did he do it? Jesus kept saying, It is written. He went to his memory banks for the truth, the antidote to Satan's schemes. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to directly do battle with him. When Peter says he is a roaring lion looking to devour you, he says resist him. Not to yell at him or rebuke him. James says to resist and flee from him. Even Jude himself says in his book that when the archangel Michael was contending with the devil, he did not rail against him, but he left it up to God and said, The Lord rebuke you! Now as I turn toward the final portion of the message today, it's time to focus on the devil's work in the world of non-believers. Now clearly Satan is roaming about the earth as the scripture says, and executing his evil schemes upon both believers and unbelievers as best he can. But like a doctor with bad news for a terminal cancer patient, outside of a miracle, I have little hope outside of the miracle of new birth and true saving faith in Christ. I have little hope 
for the world, for unbelievers. So I will let Paul describe your situation to you if you are not a born-again, spirit-filled believer. He says this in 2 Timothy about those who have not repented, that if they were to come to know the truth and be saved, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is, unbelievers are just naturally doing Satan's will. Paul says in Ephesians to believers about their life before Christ, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But then he adds this troubling description for the unsaved. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And Paul makes it clear why in 2 Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Jesus said something something really uncomfortable for non-believers said by Jesus to some very religious people who think they're good with God, doing His will. But God really likes them. Jesus says to the Pharisees, and by extension to all who reject Christ, from John 8, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Now that is not a very popular thing to say to people when presenting Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So what are some ways Satan keeps unbelievers in that state? Well, he tries to stop the gospel from even beginning to do its work. Parable of the four soils. Matthew. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. But here is a possibly much more effective way that Satan Satan keeps a person in unbelief. Imagine an army planning to destroy entire city at a certain set time. But the enemy is alarmed when he finds someone about to announce his plans in advance to everyone so they can take shelter and survive. He's got to stop each person from hearing this warning. Stop the word from getting out. And that takes a lot of help and effort, especially if he can't silence the one giving the proper advanced warning. But then the enemy realizes a better plan. Have the person giving the warning tell them it's coming tomorrow, not today, to have no fear. Have them give false information so the victims take no action to be saved from the coming disaster. And so Satan uses the same very effective technique right in the churches of God. Give them a false gospel. One that cannot save. One like Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. One often hears about how much the Bible talks about the evils of money or talks about hell. But we should also note how much the Bible talks about the false teacher and Satan loves that kind of gospel. Was that really a big deal even during the time right after Jesus walked the earth? Should we be concerned about the enemy using this very effective tool against unbelievers? Well, the New Testament gives us plenty of concern, like Paul to the Corinthians, but I am afraid just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We could go on. Jesus says many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and therefore to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are really wolves. Recall Peter was rebuked by Paul in Galatians. There were many false apostles in Corinth. Peter says others will secretly introduce destructive heresies. John says many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jude writes his whole book about them saying certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny Christ. Paul says to Christian leaders that even from within the church men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples and on and on and on. Yes, Satan loves it when a false gospel is preached. It gives him a lot less to do. He need not run around snatching the words that were sown from each person who heard the true gospel, but he can just let them go on their way believing they are right with God. Now let me give you a word picture of how Satan views the world. His greatest hope is to send people to hell where he is going to spend eternity after Jesus comes back. That is made abundantly clear in the book of Revelation. Now, if he can ruin your life in the meantime, all the better. But nothing could be more ruinous to a person than to be in eternal judgment. And Satan likes to inflict maximum pain and destruction. Now, I had for a long time been thinking about the illustration of life being like a conveyor belt, always moving, never stopping. And if you will recall, Joe used it a few weeks ago in his sermon. It's a picture of life being like a conveyor belt with unsaved people coming to the end and plunging into hell. That is an excellent picture of Satan's workings. So imagine for yourself a giant room like the convention center with a conveyor belt at one end. And Satan looks down from on high and sees everyone going about their life. And he is especially focused on unbelievers to try to keep them from becoming believers. He's happy to see those unbelievers caught up in the cares of the world, not concerned about the end of the conveyor belt, even as it keeps moving them along. He wants to keep it that way, so he studies each one's weaknesses and knows how to tempt them. He says, for example, 
Look how I've adjusted that one there with a few lies. He's making and spending as much money as he can, totally distracted from the truth. I'll just leave him alone for now. And those young ones over there, oh, they're so easy to tempt. Just a few lies, along with the temptation that the world puts in their face every day, which, of course, I have personally been largely responsible for myself. See now? They are using plenty of partying and immoral sex to occupy themselves. Oh, that is a really good one. Just a little monitoring to make sure they continue. Keep pointing them to what the culture says life is all about. And then he looks over the multitude of those in their minds don't do bad things. They do good things and feel pretty good about their future. They've never done anything bad enough to be on a conveyor belt that ends up dumping them into a fiery furnace forever. Satan leaves them alone. No adjustments needed there. He says, well, maybe I'll ruin their lives at some point with sickness or tragedy, but if not, my ultimate goal will be met. And then he rejoices over the whole room because one of his greatest victories has been achieved. Few in the room even think he exists. But then, to his horror, what is that he sees over there? There is an unbelieving couple sitting comfortably at a table, actually near the end of the conveyor belt, near the edge. But there's someone who belongs to Jesus coming near. That someone goes over to them. The one Jesus sent tells them, the couple, they're, they're near the edge. It never slows down. Time is short. He says, you've got to believe me. Don't wait. There is a man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died a bloody death on the cross, taking the penalty for your sins. You've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, just like every other person in this room. Let me tell you how profound this man is. Listen, if you receive him, something will happen to you that you now can't even imagine. You will say like the Apostle Peter did, Oh, you have not seen him. You love him. Imagine that. Someone you have never seen and you love him. More than life. More than anything in the world. Believe in him and you will know the same amazing truth. And when you realize that he really did die for you, for your forgiveness... You will say to yourself like the Apostle Paul did that since God did not spare His own Son but sent Him to that bloody cross to die for your sins, if He did that, how will He not then do everything for your ultimate good, save you from hell, take you to heaven, uphold you, give you all good things now and forever? And realize how you can trust Him to be able to do all things like the Apostle Paul did when he said he felt like he was literally going to die, like he had the sentence of death, and he said, oh wait, that means I have to rely upon God, and can God really do all he promises? Oh wait, he even raises the dead. So yes, he can do all he promises. And Satan holds his breath to see if he's lost another one since he knows the gospel and God's mercy are the only antidote to his destructive powers. We 
know that Satan was there at the beginning of creation because he tempted Eve in the garden. And we know that he will be there at the end of the age. So he is going to be around as long as we are on this earth, so we had better be ready for him. Recall that when Satan was done tempting Jesus and Jesus had not failed whatsoever, the story ends in Luke. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so, believer, that is what the enemy is going to do every time he might leave you alone. He is going to wait until an opportune time So in the meantime, between attacks, let's build ourselves up by reading this word and knowing the truth intimately. Because when the enemy returns for the zillionth time, it will be something contrary to what is in this book, some type of lie. So seize hold of the Lord at all times. Look at the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer. Not too long a list of requests to God He lays out for us. Praising His name. Asking His will to be done. Asking for daily bread, forgiveness of sins. And then asking to be delivered from the evil one. So, stay close to God. Know you have an enemy watching you carefully. But know that the only hope the only help you have is in God Himself for He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Father, thank You for Lord reminding us this morning of your absolute sovereignty over us who are believers to do us good and protect us, not to let harm come to us. Lord, I thank you that hearing these things about the enemy can rise fear in the hearts. And I ask, Lord, that fear would rise in the hearts of any unbelievers, Lord. And that it would be true that t'was your grace that taught those hearts to fear and then, Lord, that your grace, those fears, relieved when you, Lord, do the miracle of new birth in each and every one of us, we ask.